So we've been considering the office of the pastor teacher from Ephesians 4.11 for the last few weeks. I think about, uh, oh, 10 weeks now or something like that. This morning we're going to finish our study of the purpose, the function, and the qualifications of the office of pastor teacher. And then next week we're going to continue in our study of the book of Ephesians from verse 12 and onward. So if you've been looking forward to getting to the next verse, that's going to happen next week. But this morning, I want to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue looking at the qualifications of the pastor teacher. Now, you can go ahead and turn there. And while you do that, let me read to you our Ephesians passage again, just as a reminder. 4.11, it says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Scripture's made it very clear to us so far that God takes leadership in the church seriously. We understand that as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. In other words, the church will always be a reflection of its leaders eventually. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, gives qualifications for these Leaders, And when they are adhered to, what you find is a church that eventually becomes a church that grows spiritually. The people thrive in the faith. Holiness becomes essential in the church, and the church is made much of, and the word of God is rightly esteemed, and God is glorified throughout the congregation. Contrarily, when these qualifications are ignored, you get what we often see, a church that is very shallow in terms of their faith and their belief, licentious often, excusing sin, lackadaisical, and looks far more like the world than like Christ. There's no... So we're talking about the fact that the character of a leader is really vital. Now we understand there's no perfect man, right? So we read through these qualifications and, and we need to understand that it's not speaking of the perfect man because there's only ever been a perfect man and there's no man without sin. But the Bible describes a man in these passages who demonstrates a character that's worth imitating. Much like when the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. This should be true of every leader. It should be true of me. If one were to look at my life and find that it not be worthy of imitation, then it would mean that I'm not qualified for the ministry. And that's true for every man who seeks the office of the pastor teacher. Now, we've spoken of why some of these passages are crucial not only for the man who would seek to lead in the church, but why these passages are really crucial for every Christian. And I want to sort of summarize why that's true in three brief points to you this morning before we move forward, just as a reminder. The first reason that these qualifications are true for you in the pew, every man, every woman, every teenager, every child, every boy, every girl that sits in the pew, these qualifications for an elder are important for you. And the first reason is that it's important because it's found in Scripture. 
There's nothing in the Bible that's irrelevant to the Christian. Nothing. Not one page, not one letter, not one sentence. If it's to be found anywhere between Genesis chapter 1-1 and Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21, it's because the Holy Spirit deemed it necessary for the Christian life. And so I hope that we never look at a passage of Scripture and say, well, I just don't need that passage. That should never happen. This is the very Word of God. It was written for your sake and for my sake, and it was paid for by the blood of Christ. And so this isn't a book like any other. It's a book unlike anything that's ever been written. It's authoritative because it comes from the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that was made. It comes from the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe. And so it's just as important for you, these qualifications, as it is for me. It's unlike any other book because it's inerrant. There's no error in the Bible because it came from the one who has no error, the holy God of the universe. And it's unlike any other book because it's sufficient for everything you need for the Christian faith and for holiness. The second reason these qualifications are important for you to know is that these are the qualities and character that every Christian should exhibit. Yes, the pastor must exhibit them, but so too should you. They're directed towards the pastor, the elder in this passage, but they're merely a description of what the godly man or godly woman looks like. These characteristics aren't arbitrary. They're a reflection of the character and the holiness of God. And so when you exhibit these characteristics, you're emulating the character of Christ. 1 Peter 1.15, directed to all believers, says this. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And that's really what we've been talking about is a must for the office of the pastor. And so it's also for you. Listen to Paul's exhortation to the Romans in chapter 6 of Romans, verses 1 through 13. Let me read that for you. You don't have to flip there. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so these qualifications are just as important to the Christian who's not in the office as the Christian who is in the office of pastor. The third quick point I would make is even at the risk of appearing that I'm somehow promoting my own authority, though I assure you this is not the case, the third point is that you must know the qualifications of an elder because God commands every believer to submit to the church's elders, the church's leaders. And so if that is God's admonition to you, then you need to know what God expects of the leaders you are meant to submit to. Listen to Hebrews 13, 15 through 18. It says, now, by the way, it's the author of Hebrews speaking of God-pleasing sacrifices, of what pleases God. He writes and he says this, Through him then, that's Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with great joy and not with, with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so since the command of God is that all believers are meant to have a shepherd and are meant to submit to those shepherds, then you ought to know what kind of leaders are intended to be in the church. So that you can submit yourself to men who are pleasing to God. Rather than men who are trying to please the world. No pastor's perfect. If you know me, you definitely know that's true. Right? And just like no member is perfect. And since I know you, I also know that is not true. Or is true, rather. But the last thing that you want to do is submit yourself and your family to ungodly leadership. The last thing that you want to do is submit to men who are trying to please the world and are ignoring the word of God. And so since you need a shepherd, you must know what kind of shepherd God approves. Very well. With that introduction, I want to move on and finish the qualifications of an elder this morning. If you will put your eyes down, you should be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 already. Let me read this again for us. It says this, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we ended last week on the qualification of being able to teach. We discussed that it's the pastor's duty and responsibility to reprove lovingly 
to rebuke and to exhort God's people for the sake of their walk with Christ. And this morning we come to a prohibition. The elder must not be addicted to wine. And perhaps the first thing that ought to be said is that this passage does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. I know that will make some uncomfortable, but it states not addicted to wine. It doesn't say abstinence from wine. When we come to passages like this, the human heart tends to do either one of two things. It tends to go to legalism beyond the passage, or it tends to go to loose living and sort of ignore the passage. Some men, for instance, would say that this verse forbids a pastor from ever taking any alcohol. Others would say it doesn't do that at all, and so since we can, we can flaunt that liberty. Both of those positions are wrong. And so the question is, what does this passage really say and what does it mean? Well, there are a few problems with the view that it forbids a pastor from ever taking any alcohol. Aside from the obvious problem that the text just simply doesn't say that. I want to go through a few of these with you. One of the problems is that the very first miracle Jesus did was to turn water into wine. Now, unless one wants to argue that wine meant grape juice and God made a mistake there, which would be an absurd argument given that it was for a wedding and they had already been drinking wine, you would have to say that Jesus was in sin by providing something he prohibits. So that wouldn't make any sense to take that position. But the second issue is that Jesus, along with all the apostles, clearly drank wine which was alcoholic. In fact, it was the standard drink. It was mixed with water so that it was safe to drink. The alcohol purified the water. Now, we do have to say that the wine of that time was nothing like the wine of our time, okay? It was severely diluted, not like the very strong kind of wine that we have. In fact, most sources agree that the common ratio of the mixture between water and wine of the day was somewhere near eight parts water to one part wine. Okay? So it was very, very diluted, but was enough alcohol to kill whatever was in the water to make it safe to drink. But nonetheless, it did contain alcohol. And so there's a second reason you can't take that passage to mean abstinence. Another reason, and the last one I'll give you this morning, although there are many, many other ones we could speak about, would be to say that if it was the prohibition of any alcohol, you would have to consistently apply that across the board. What do I mean? Well, you never hear the same people who say, no, it's no alcohol at all. You never hear them arguing that this means calling for the removal of a pastor because he took a little bit of NyQuil during flu season. Well, guess what NyQuil has on it? Alcohol. You also don't hear any objections to things like mouthwash, which can have alcohol in it. How about sauce bernays? I'm sorry, you can't have that. If you do, you're unqualified. You don't ever hear that. Or Benadryl or Robitussin, not to mention vanilla extract or almond extract. How about breath strips or many of the other day-to-day -day items that contain minuscule amounts 
of alcohol. So if alcohol were prohibited in its entirety, then anything with alcohol would be prohibited and it would be disqualifying. I mean, who ever heard of a pastor being disqualified because his wife made a nice dish with a little side of Bernays sauce? That would be ridiculous. It's absurd to think that a pastor would be disqualified because he popped in a breath strip before he did a counseling session. It's just simply not what the passage means, and at, at the least, that view is terribly inconsistent. The prohibition is on the addiction of wine. So now we need to ask, though, what exactly does that mean? Well, as we've talked about already, it isn't prohibition. It also can't be meaning a drunkard, because a drunkard is already disqualified, right? So it can't mean that either. So what does it mean? Well, the phrase actually means one who is associated with alcohol. In other words, it's a man who has a reputation as a drinker, not necessarily a drunkard, but as a drinker. He may never get drunk, but when people speak of him, the people that know him, do they know him as a, quote, drinking man? That's what the passage prohibits. Do people know him as the pastor who's always at the bar? or the drinking lounge, or the pastor who always has to have his glass of wine at night. Of course, that's not to say that he never does, but is he known by that? Would it come up in conversation if people were to ask about what kind of man he was? Oh yeah, that pastor, he's always hanging out at the bar. Now, the other side of the argument is that some seem to want to flaunt their liberty. They see that it doesn't prohibit it, and so they want to flaunt that. And this is an error, too, as we said earlier. There's sort of a popular and rather unfortunate trend today in, of cigar-smoking and scotch-drinking pastors, popularized by, really likely by what we would call sort of the young, the restless, and the reformed movement and it's a bunch of young-ish pastors who think because they have a little bit of liberty, it's okay to flaunt a cigar and a glass of scotch. It's sort of the mentality that we have liberty, therefore we're free to display it. And so you've got some pastors doing just really stupid things, like having Bible studies in pubs, or making ministry videos while holding a cigar and a dram of scotch. And I would argue that these are exactly the kind of men this passage is warning against. The cost of leadership is high, and God expects the pastor to demonstrate a life worthy of imitation. Leaders should never rightly be the reason someone justifies that which would be a temptation to sin. Well, the pastor hangs out at the bar every night. Surely, it's not too much of a big deal. You should never have that. The pastor is to be an example of a man living a life in pursuit of righteousness and holiness. He's not a perfect man, but he should be a man's life that you look at and you say, I can imitate things of this, about this man. That man should be able to say, like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And that's not the image you get if the man is known to be associated with alcohol. So not only is he not to be associated as a drinking man, but the text then goes on to say he must not be pugnacious. Well, the word pugnacious literally means not a giver of blows. Not a giver of blows. That's what the word literally means. Or not a striker. Okay? In other words, a leader in the church must not be a man given to physical violence. Now, that should be kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't really take a whole lot of explanation there. That doesn't mean he's some pacifist, though, who refuses to defend his family or protect even his, the, the flock. But it does mean that violence is never his first resort. He responds to difficult situations and disputes without immediately resorting to physical violence. So then it should not surprise us. The next characteristic is exactly the opposite of being pugnacious. It's gentle. Well, the word gentle here means considerate, gracious, or forbearing. Considerate, gracious, or forbearing. A gentle man is one who is willing to forgive wrongs and pardon failures. Look, we all fail. We all get things wrong. We all mess up. The Christian who is gentle is one who's willing to forgive those wrongs, forgive those failures, forgive when people sin against us, and it's a must for the pastor or any who would seek leadership in the church. Colossians 3.12 says this. It says, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, so you see this passage is for all Christians, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then it goes on to describe what that looks like in the next verse. It says, so, so how do you put on kindness? How do you put on gentleness? What does that look like? Verse 13 says, bearing with one another. You know what bearing with one another means? It means sharing the hard things, putting up with each other, and forgiving each other. That's not always an easy thing to do, right? Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Gentle. Many men have been disqualified from the ministry because they were found to be harsh, dictatorial, unforgiving men. That isn't the character the pastor, teacher, called by God is meant to have. Neither is harshness the character that any Christian should have. Remember, when we're talking about the office, the pastor is a shepherd, right? And the shepherd is not harsh with the sheep. He's meant to care for the sheep lovingly, requiring a spirit of gentleness. We'll move on, and we'll go through these kind of quickly. Next, we're going to see that he's to be peaceable. Well, that just simply means peaceful. He's a peaceful man. In other words, he's... It's not a reluctancy to fight physically. It's a reluctancy to fight verbally. In other words, he doesn't get any kind of internal joy out of looking for a verbal fight. He's not needing that, trying to find that. He doesn't go needlessly looking for fights. On the contrary, he desires unity. He hates disharmony. 
And he isn't always seeking an aggressive confrontation, though they may happen at times. Moving along, we see, we see then that he must be free from the love of money. Well, this is easy for a church planner. <laughs> There's not normally a lot of money in church planting. But I will tell you, this is one of maybe the biggest ones of our day. The love of money is commonly associated with false teachers, and if you look throughout the thread of Scripture, it's often associated with false teachers. In fact, while keeping your finger in 1 Timothy, why don't you turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. By the way, while you're flipping there, this is, a good, this is why it's a good idea to get a Bible with tabs if you don't have one, so you can get there quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2. Okay. Verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Now, this doesn't mean the pastor doesn't make his living by the church. That's good, and that's right, and that's God's design. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5.17.18 says, Let the elders who rule well and uh, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while, when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But money is not the motivator for what he does. It's just merely a necessity. We all have to eat, we all have to have a house, you know that. It's not difficult to spot the love of money, by the way. If anyone claims that God told him he needs a couple million dollars for a jet, you know there's the love of money there, right? A leader can't be greedy or stingy or financially ambitious. The church isn't a business, and being a shepherd isn't a business venture. Nor should any Christian be greedy or stingy, right? So from there, we're told that the office requires one who manages his own household well. It reads, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the household of God? Here's a reality. And this is, by the way, why we do Wednesday nights in our home. Because there's really no better place to tell a man's character than in his own home. And if a man is hospitable, you'll see that. And if he's unhospitable, you'll see that. If he's angry, you'll see that. It'll come out eventually. The people have access to his life in the home. And they can see how he manages his home affairs, at least to some degree. And so uh, the issue is here is that he, can't, he doesn't just demonstrate public righteousness but that the character must also be demonstrated in the private setting of his own home. And so his family life should equally be worthy of imitating, just like his life in the public eye. 
Now, we have to say that this passage is not meant to say that the elder must have a family or children, okay? That has been a thing that's come up in the past. It's merely recognizing that this is going to be the normal situation, right? Normally, in the life of the church, the pastor will be a man who has a family and who has children, but that's not always the case. Paul, by the way, the one writing this letter, Paul, the one writing these qualifications, guess what? Neither had a family or children, okay? Nor did Christ for that sake, for that matter. The point is, if the man is married and if the man has children, then this applies to him. But whatever the family status, even the single man must manage his household well. I want to break down the passage just a little bit further for you. The passage says that the elder must manage his household. It's God's design that men lead both in the home and the church. If the man isn't leading his home, he's unqualified to lead the church, period. But not only must he manage his home, but he also has to do it well. You know, you can manage your home very poorly, right? So he has to manage it well. The term here actually means excellent. He has to manage his home excellently. One commentator, when I was looking up the word, um, says that the, this particular word gives the sense of being aesthetically good, beautiful and appealing to the eyes. In other words, if one were to see how he manages his home, it would be visibly good. There would be no issues with it. We should also just mention that household doesn't merely refer to children here. It's actually talking about everything under his control. So not just his family, but his finances and even his other belongings. The phrase keeping his children under control with all dignity. Again, that doesn't exclude men who don't have children. It's just the expectation of men who do. Now, the word under control is very interesting. That word is actually a military word. It's a military word. And it means to line up and rank under the one in authority. Keeping your children under control means to line them up and rank under the one of authority. In authority. Children must know that the father is the authority in the home, and they must respect that authority. Imagine the respect and discipline observed by a lower-ranking soldier to a higher-ranking soldier, and that's the idea that the, the phrase gives here. That's the picture of under control. So a man who has unruly, disrespectful, undisciplined, wild children is not fit to lead the church. Because he can't bring order even to his own home. So keeping his children under control with all dignity basically means that the man's family is well ordered. His home, his affairs are properly looked after. His children are generally respectful and disciplined and well-mannered. Now this doesn't mean that children aren't going to be children. It doesn't mean that they're never going to do foolish things. But it does mean that the man responds appropriately and the children are brought under control. I think the following qualification as we move on, more than any other, especially when we consider youth ministries, is really ignored. It's all too common not to be a new convert. 
It's too common for a young man to come to Christ. He's on fire for the Lord. He's telling everyone about Jesus. He's learning. He's studying. He's doing all these things. He's serving in the church. And six months later, someone walks up to him and says, you know what? You would make a really great youth pastor. And they do that. And next thing you know, you've got a six-month-old Christian leading in the church. First of all, it's just absolutely foolish to let untrained people teach the most vulnerable people in your church, the children. Beyond that, it's unbiblical. By the way, this isn't limited to just how youth ministries work. Sometimes churches are so desperate for leadership that they'll bring new converts on, sadly, to their detriment. The passage says not to do that, and one of the reasons is that they'll be tempted by conceit. So it's actually for their own sake, as well as for the sake of the church, that they might fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In other words, they get puffed up and arrogant, and that's the temptation when a new believer, a young believer, gets put into the place of leadership. So lastly, we come to verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, when I first read this some time back, I thought to myself, well, what godly person out there has ever had a good reputation with the world? So what on earth does this mean? And so the question arises, what, is it, what does good reputation mean? Does it mean the world should desire us? Does it mean that they should uh, embrace us? Does it mean that they should get along well with us? What exactly does this mean? Well, to answer the question, I want to take you sort of through the scriptures just briefly to demonstrate to you first what it doesn't mean, okay? Because I think that's important. I want to make the case for what it does mean, but I want to first make the case for what it does not mean. All right. So first, let's consider some of the prophets that were chosen by God. Right. In the Old Testament, these were godly men qualified in the sight of God to be leaders of his people. For example, we have the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was quite a man with quite a message. In Isaiah chapter one, he opens with the word of God. Listen to what he says. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, this is Isaiah with the word of the Lord that he brought to the people. Listen, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of, your God, of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am becoming weary of them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. It's a pretty strong statement. I don't know, maybe this prophet might have been a mean tweeter back in the day. Chapter after chapter, if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah proclaims God's judgment on the people for their wickedness, calling them to repent and to return to faithfulness to God. And so what was the response? What was his reputation? Did they embrace him as a loved one? Did they pat him on the back? Did it make him feel warm and cozy inside? So what was his reputation? Well, I'll just tell you how he met his end. Isaiah was a martyr. In fact, it's believed that King Manasseh actually had him sawn in two. The writers of Hebrew in chapter 11 speaks about the victories of faith and faithful prophets and servants. And we believe that he mentions Isaiah's fate. Here, listen to what he has to say. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the powers of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies in flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. So it was thought that this reference to being sawn in two was about Isaiah. So what kind of reputation did Isaiah have with those outside of the church? Well, maybe we need to ask a little question. Since King Manasseh is the one who did this, what was he like? Well, God saw fit to tell us what he was like in 2 Kings chapter 21. Listen as I read this for you. This is the description of King Manasseh. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord in accordance with the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, just as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the heavenly lights and served them. These are false gods. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He built altars for all the heavenly lights in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord. So he's building idols where only God should be worshipped. Well, it carries on. And he made his son pass through the fire, interpreted signs, practiced divination, used mediums and spiritists. He did great evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So this king was clearly outside of the church, right? 
Did Isaiah have a good reputation with him? What about Daniel? Let's just look at Daniel just real briefly. We know Daniel was a faithful man, right? Daniel was a godly man, and yet it was those outside of the church who persecuted Daniel. Daniel in chapter 6, we read from verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the document was signed, let me just back up a little bit, a little history here. Remember, there were some folks in the kingdom who really hated Daniel, and they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. Daniel wasn't stealing from the treasury. He wasn't going behind the king's back and doing things he shouldn't be doing. And so what they did was they talked the king into passing an edict that wouldn't allow you to worship anyone other than him. And here we are. Now, when Daniel learned that the document was signed, he entered the house. And in the roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and offering praise before God, just as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel offering a prayer and imploring favor before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any person who offers a prayer to any god or person beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be thrown in the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they responded and spoke to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps offering his prayer three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on rescuing Daniel. And until sunset, he kept exerting himself to save him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave the orders, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the lion's den. Then the king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you continually serve, will himself rescue you. So these were three or several godless men who tricked the king into making a law just so that Daniel could be executed. Did Daniel have a good reputation with these men? They were clearly not God's people. So that's the Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? We come into the New Testament, and how about John the Baptist? What was John the Baptist's reputation? Well, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod because unbelievers hated him. Stephen was the first martyr in the New Testament church. He was stoned to death because those outside of the church hated him. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by Romans because they hated him. So what kind of reputation did Paul have? Did Stephen have? Did John the Baptist have? And yet... It was the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote that for a man to be qualified as a leader in the church, he absolutely must be a man who has a good reputation with those outside of the church. How does that work? Even Timothy, who was the elder at Ephesus, the very book we're studying, was martyred. By unbelievers in Ephesus. And of course, Jesus himself was hated. So, what do you say about the reputation of our Lord? 
So the picture here is so far, it seems like godly men have anything but a good reputation with the world. And then further than that, we come to the words of Christ himself. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I mean, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, right? He's teaching them. And what does he say? Put your eyes down on verses 10 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12. This is Jesus speaking and he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, that's very interesting. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, 18 and 19, this is Jesus again. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In Romans 12, 14, we're told to bless those who persecute us. And so the expectation is that we're going to be hated. We're going to be persecuted. And so when we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that the unbelieving world has always hated God's people. From the Old Testament prophets to the apostles to Christ himself. And then us, we're told, will be hated And so what does it mean that leaders of the church must have a good reputation? And so then the question is also, what does it mean that you should have a good reputation with the world? Because this is just the character of a believer, not just the pastor. Well, clearly what it does not mean is that they will love us. We've got that, right? The word good here, a good reputation, the word good here actually is speaking to morals. Morals. Reputation is mean, means a report or a record. In other words, the pastor must have an exceptional moral report before the world. The Christian should have a good moral report before the world. It's a similar idea to being above reproach. The world, although they may kill God's people, although they may persecute them, can't charge them with moral failures. And that's what this passage is speaking to. In other words, the world can't look to the church's leaders and say, look at that adulterer, look at that drunkard, look at that thief, look at that womanizer, look at that overly harsh man. That's what it's saying. They may hate you. They may persecute you. But what they can't do is look at you and accuse you of being a morally 
corrupt person. The pastor, the one who would seek the office of shepherd, has to have a morally good report before the world. They might revile, they might conjure false witnesses, they might lie, they might slander, but there's no morally bad report that they could honestly give. And that was certainly true of all the men we looked at. It was true of Isaiah. It was true of Daniel. It was true of the apostles. It was true of Christ. There was no moral report. They lied. They produced false witnesses. But there was nothing genuinely there that they could accuse them of. So as we finish up these qualifications, again, I want to press upon you that these are things that you should be looking at and asking yourself. Am I a gentle man? Am I a gentle woman? Am I above reproach? Do I have a good moral report before the world? These are characteristics that every Christian should be striving for. But these are characteristics that every pastor must have. Each one of us are stewards of what God's given us. And so we should all strive to manage our households well. We should all strive to be respectable, to be prudent, to be hospitable, to be peaceable. We should all strive to be free from the love of money. And we should all strive to have a good report by those outside of the church. Let's pray.